And that was The Smiths with a track called This Night Has Opened My Eyes from their album Hatful of Hollow. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop, this week's special guest, because we always like one, is Paul Sutton from the Pink Record label. So expect quality chat and another award-worthy playlist. So, because there's quite a lot to pack in, I think we should get on with the first song before we hear from Paul. Yes, the one and only June Bryant with a track, Every Conversation. Sleep at night, and all the stupid tales we tell, they're never gonna wear. I sometimes think that all we dream of castles in the air. But I cannot see The more that you tell me The less clear it is to me The single for simple Is now confused Words and new victims So easily abused Na 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 And every conversation's the same The life the world cliches It's bad when things in name What I try to give And other people's words Tomorrow I'll repeat what I just heard Whenever it comes to arguing I'm not quite where I stand I never know just where I'm gonna The 
Yes, the June Brides, featuring the one and only Phil Wilson plus Frank Sweeney, Adrian Carter, Simon Beasley and Chris Nyam with the track Every Conversation. It is pop perfection, I know. It's exciting stuff. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. I will tell you a little bit later on how you can contact me if you so wish. But what the hell, life's too short. Let's get on with the first part of the interview. When I caught up with Paul Sutton, one of the... uh, owners of the Pink record label, famous for having bands like uh, um, Jamie Wednesday, McCarthy, The Wolfhands, June Brides, and That Petrol Emotion. But anyway, this is the first part of the interview, and this is where I ask Paul about the start and the beginning of the label. Paul, give us the info. It was started by a friend of mine, Simon Down. Um, we knew each other from uh, Boston in Lincolnshire, which is where I was born, and Simon, me and Simon went to college together. Yeah. Um, he moved down to London, um, and uh, I then followed on to him. He's decided to start the label. Um, before I joined up with him on it, I was travelling down to London. And I'd moved down there. I was going to. I was kind of hooking up with him socially again. Yeah. Uh, after losing contact for a couple of years, um, so he had already made friends with like um, Alan McGee by that point. Um, so we were going to gigs um, around sort of Soho area, really, which eventually became the living room. Yeah. Um, so we kind of met up. We were going to those sort of things. So I got started to see a lot of the bands. Um, by that point, by the time I moved there, which would have been um, the summer of 1984, he'd already released the first two June Bride singles. Yeah. And, and a single by The Ringing. Um, they all sold appallingly badly. Uh, he didn't have any money left. So um, he wanted me to join him, basically, first of all, as a financial kind of partner in the label. Um, and as we had so much in common, he wanted me to kind of co-run it as, as well, I guess. But mainly it was, um, you know, I think basically he'd run out of money and he couldn't, he'd got the June Brides, uh, but he couldn't afford to record their album. So I basically took out a bank loan, small bank loan, and uh, sold my car. And um, from there, we managed to get a whole £1,000 together to put the uh, June Brides in the studio and record their, their album, basically. Right. That, was, um, that was quite a kind of... Was it? Did it feel like a big gamble at the time? Well, I was. Uh, we were both working, so we were kind of... Financially, it was okay for me. I mean, it was a £500 bank loan and I sold my car for £500. Uh, it, it wasn't that big a deal. I didn't have any debts. Um, so the idea was that, obviously, he'd spent about the equivalent amount of money setting the label up and putting three singles out. So he'd lost about £1,000. So I put £1,000 in, and then right. what was going to happen is we were gonna, all going to sell, sign loads of bands, sell thousands of records, and we'd both get our £1,000 back. And, you know make a fast profit <laughs> obviously none of that ever happened because nobody ever saw a penny out of it so uh, no but, uh, but that, that, that was a general idea yes and because uh, i talked to um one of the people who set up sarah records and obviously when they they had no idea what they were particularly doing so i mean and it sounded no. like they learned lots along the way and just kind of wish they'd sort of started with a better kind of, um, I suppose, grounding, but they didn't, so that was life. But did you have much of an idea of what you were also doing? Uh, business-wise, no. No, not really. It really was just like, well, we'll spend X amount of money and then we should get this amount of money back per record. And then if we multiply it by this number, 
then, you know, all we've got to do is sell 2,000 of these records without any reality involved at all. So, um, no, we had, a, we had a distribution deal with Rough Trade, and the deal you had with Rough Trade was uh, you could get different deals, but we had one of the nice deals where it was, uh, I can't remember what they called it, but it was not just distribution, but they actually invested in the label. So you had an account with Rough Trade. So you didn't have to pay for pressing up your records. Rough Trade paid for that on credit. Yes. Um, and then when the royalties came through from the record selling, they'd take off all of the, um, all the money that they'd spent, and then you'd get a percentage back. Yeah. As profit. Because, because, um, yes. So you could because you you sort of I must admit you know being a, a sort of a bit of an obsessive indie kid you you did sort of have a lot of very good bands on you know you did pick a lot of good bands didn't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. I think you know. I mean, obviously it's all thirty years ago now, but and looking back on it, I mean, that's my one regret is that I really wish that we could have made better produced records and in some cases not given some of the artists quite as much freedom to do what they wanted because in the end I think for me looking back on it some of the records don't stand up and that's because in some cases we allowed the artists to have the last say even though there is a couple of records we put out that I just wouldn't have wanted to put I didn't really want to put out yes I didn't think they were good enough um not the songs or the artists I didn't think the production was good enough yeah uh, uh, I mean, one of the one of the strength of that petrol emotion was uh, was one when we put their single out. That was a bizarre situation. Um, we were in the I'd they were about to sign to Creation, and Alan McGee had run out of money. Um, they then I knew them through friends. Everybody knew everybody on the scene in London uh, and knew each other from gigs and socialising. Um, they took me out uh, to a university at Mile End on a Tuesday night and got me drunk and said it was a social drink. But all it was, in fact, was to try and persuade me to sign them to the Pink Label and put their record out. And, the, and was this keen? Yeah, so that was like... And so I'm in a room drunk, really drunk, because it got me really, really drunk. Room <laughs> spinning. And I've got um, Raymond, who was a guitarist, who was a great guy, who was the guy I knew best of all at that time. And also John and Damien O'Neill are in the undertones, you know, and it was their first project since the undertones. And I'm sitting in a bar blind drunk with the undertones with John O'Neill, who wrote Teenage Kicks and all of their hits, um, saying to me, oh, will you put our record out? So, <laughs> yeah. so, um, uh, so that was the uh, response to that was obviously yes. Um, so we, um, we had some time booked, actually. I think it was probably for the June Brides album. Um, and... But they were insistent that they wanted to record really, really quickly or they were going to go back to Ireland and split up because they'd had enough of bumming around London trying to get a record deal and get something going and it wasn't working. And they were like, look, if this doesn't happen, that's it. It's over for us because John's going back to his family and it's all finished. So if, if I recall, we had time booked in a studio near Waterloo for the June Bride to start their album and we put Petrol Emotion in instead. So we put them in one weekend and recorded both sides of the single. And at that time, um, they didn't have a... The singers were John O'Neill and I think it was, it was either Raymond or Damien. Steve Mack wasn't on the scene. Oh, right. He wasn't there, basically, and didn't exist as part of the band. And then we were due to mix it the next week. And in the week, 
the kind of guy's kind of got a phone call saying, hey, guess what? We've got this guy from America. He's like a singer. He's going to be our new singer. Um, he worked in a pizza parlor or something. <laughs> and, they, and they met him when they were having a pizza or something. This is the story they told me anyway. So anyway, sure enough, this guy turns up and um, he's got a really great voice and he's a really nice guy and he's really enthusiastic. But the only problem was when he tried to record over the, preview, over the backing track that had been recorded, he couldn't sing in key to it. So we had to speed the backing tracks up and then get him to sing along, then slow the whole thing down again, which is why when you listen to Keen, the vocal on Keen is really low. <laughs> it sounds a bit flat. It's all kind of... <laughs> instead of being a proper kind of... So when I say I have regrets about what was put out, I wish at that point something really simple. I just said, hey, just speed the whole track up again. Yes. Put it out so it's a bit faster. Do something about that vocal because... You know, I sat there and heard the final mix on the Sunday night and thought, oh, no, this isn't it. <laughs> but everyone else in the room was saying, yeah, it is. This is the one. And when you've got John O'Neill saying to you, this is the one, then you tend to let him get away with it, really. Absolutely. Um, you're just a like, naive person sat in a room. I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, they saw me and Simon as people, the guys that ran this record um, company that was going places and, you know, men about town and we were out and about all the time and we, we knew everyone. And, but, you know, the, the reality was, you know, we didn't know anything. We didn't know, didn't know what we were doing at all. And that's the first part of my interview with Paul Sutton from the Pink of a Record label. And um, for those who are sort of still keen, interested, even obsessed with the indie pop world from the 80s. There was a very good book that came out earlier this year, written by the one and only Neil Taylor, the NME journalist, who put together the original 22-track uh, cassette. And um, the book is titled C86 and all that, the creation of indie in difficult times. And there's a whole section about uh, the June Brides and the Pink Label and all that malarkey. But anyway, look, I think we should have some more music, then a bit more chat from Paul. But before that, let's go for the... Um, the power pop sound that is the oh, yeah, I was going to say wedding present not at all but it begins with W it is the wolf hands and anti minus touch i 
Indeed, that's the Wolfhounds with a track called Anti-Minus Touch, and they have got a live date in October, the 5th of October, playing with the Membranes, the Cravats, who features the lead singer from The Very Things, yes, The Shend, and also Steve Ignorant, who was in Crass, so do check check that out. And also the Wolfhounds has just had a compilation that's been released on the record label, A Turntable Friend, and this is uh, titled Hands in the Till, the complete John Peel sessions. So um, if you love the wolf hands, it's definitely that time of year to embrace them and give them a bit of a hug because they do like a squeeze. Anyway, enough of that. Look, back to the interview. This is with Paul Sutton from the Pink Record Label, and this is where we talk about the one and only John Peel. Paul, talk about John Peel, please. Well, John Peel was one of the, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, really, he was. I mean, that was just a godsend. I mean, not only because um, the quality of the recording you get in the studio, and I think now if you listen back to any of the Peel sessions of any of the bands, I think you'll find they're probably better than the records generally. Yes, yeah, to, to the point where when we um, did the Peel session with McCarthy, and then part of that session they did Franz Howells, then we did it in the studio. We decided the studio version wasn't very good, so we just licensed the BBC recording and put that out. Yes. Yeah. Well, I always, um, I always, yes, I always thought that with the Smiths, their first album was like mm, it's all right, but then the you know Hatful of Hollow, and it's like wow, this is amazing, you know. So it yeah, did, yeah. it did sort of make so much difference, and obviously the people they had and the producer they had um, just managed to sort of get that balance right. So it's because initially you put out a couple of singles by Jamie Wednesday, which were you know like they filled with sort of people who went on to huge things didn't they like Carter and also Bob and and so you yeah. again you you were surfing the sort of cultural zeitgeist at the time yeah they were um yeah they were interesting really uh, we had an agreement at the pink wave me and Simon had an agreement that um we both had to want to sign a band to sign them uh, Jamie Wednesday was a band that uh, I don't know how Simon had come across them at all. I don't know if he'd been told about them. I can't remember ever hearing a tape from them or anything like that, because most bands you heard a tape or something first, and then you went to see them. But um, for some reason, we went to a pub in Kentish Town, uh, Bull and Gate, I think it was called. They used to do gigs on Friday nights, and they played at that. And uh, we were both blown away by them, actually. They were just fantastic. They had a really great little horn section. And they were quite aggressive. Um, and they basically sounded like what we wanted, which was like the fire engines meets Dexys, really. Yes. Uh, um, so, uh, but then they had this kind of whimsical English thing going on as well. So, and they really um, divided 
people as well. They're a real Marmite group yeah. for, for people. Um, you couldn't have envisaged, I, I certainly would never have envisaged the sort of success that Carter had or anything like that coming from what they did. They were great guys and they deserve it. Well, I was always a bit amazed a few years later when Carter was headlining sort of Glastonbury on the pyramid stage. It was like, I can remember them at the art centre with, uh, you know, 200 people and you're thinking, good, but they're never going to. I was at that. I was at that gig. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, you know, everybody's had Carter T-shirts and it was a bit like, God, the world's gone a bit weird. You know, it's like, how did they suddenly become the main band at Glastonbury, you know? You know, it was, you know, it was just one of those weird, well, it was the same with the orb, really, you know, again, you know, I remember getting the 12 inch and thinking, well, this is good. And then suddenly they were the main band at Glastonbury on a Saturday night when everyone was off their face. And it was like, I don't understand it, you know, but obviously two years later, you know, they they couldn't sell out the art centre again. But for a moment, they captured it perfectly. Yeah, I think the only group that really did that with us was the June Brides with their first album. Uh, well, their only album actually, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. That that album. That's that's when we started to, because that did really well. That was easily the best selling record that um, that we were involved in. Um, I mean, it went straight to number one in the indie charts. First indie band to be on the front page of the NME. Um, played. They just gigged everywhere. You know, everyone was on the dole. Um, you know, but and they all just they just gigged everywhere, all over the country, and they, they sold that album on the back of live com, live gigs. They went somewhere, they played to fifty people, or thirty people, or a hundred people, and you know, two thirds of those people would buy the records. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the June Bides are well, one of those incredible bands that you know, like everybody I inter- interview, always talk. There's two bands that everyone mentions. One's the June Brides, the other one is the Go-Betweens as hugely influential, yeah. you know, and it's quite interesting that people look at them in that way and yet very few people really sort of, they, ha- they haven't had that much success now, you know, which is which seems an absolute crime, really. Yeah, I mean, like the, like the Wolfhounds, I think they've probably got getting more success now they've reformed in this day than they ever had. Yeah. You know, I, I've been to see the Wolfhounds two or three times and they, they get far more people at gigs and far more interest than they did. It was a struggle to get, you know, to get gigs. It was a struggle to get people along a lot of the time. Um, so, um, yeah, it's hard work, not just for our bands, but for all the bands, really. Well, with the yeah. Wolfhounds, again, they, they did sort of that amazing single which came out. It always felt like it was a summer. I don't know if my memory serves me right, but that 12-inch, which was another lazy A on a lazy day. That would have been spring, summertime, because um, I would have thought uh, my timeline's gone. But I remember we signed signed the Wolfhounds, and then after that, I found McCarthy, I think it was. or um, I'm getting confused now, but definitely their recording went back and came out in the summer, I think. It was meant to come out. I think it was meant to come out straight after the June Brides album. And it, yes. and it, was, it was recorded, I think, but it wasn't manufactured. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a fantastic single, and you know, and obviously, their their sort of first album was just incredible. I mean, the other thing which was kind of boggling, apart from the amount of good bands you had, is that it kind of it it had a very limited life. So, what was the narrative of the label? Uh, Well, we uh, (laughs) yeah, Mm. Um, (laughs) quite difficult to answer that really without saying personal things. But all I would say is that. we had this agreement where um, we both had to kind of like a band to sign them, if you like. And um, at the point when, after all this, what else was going on, I was managing the Wolfhounds of McCarthy. Simon was managing a band called Rumblefish. 
and was keen to push on with Jamie Wednesday. That kind of didn't work out. Um, a strange thing happened. Um, we had a situation where we had the June Brides, that Petrol Emotion, the Wolfhounds and McCarthy all ready to go. We'd recorded the June Brides album. Uh, Petrol single was ready to come out. The Wolfhounds were about to go in the studio, as were McCarthy. I went holiday to Greece and I came back and two of the bands had left the label. And um, I don't know what happened, frankly. Um, some conversation had taken place with Simon and Petrol Emotion had decided to release a record on their own. June Brides had decided to sign to Intape. So that was kind of a bit of a problem, really, first of all. And then we went on to sign in Rumblefish and Jamie Wednesday to replace those two. They didn't get any success at all. So we were left with basically the Wolfhounds and McCarthy not really propping up the label, but being the only two bands on the label that were able to sustain themselves in any way. Yeah. And even, and even the Wolfhounds financially were losing money at every release. Um, and there were personal things going on. It reached a point, everyone was in everyone's pockets. Um, McCarthy said to me they didn't want to record anymore for the Pink Label. Uh, the Wolfhounds didn't want to either. The Wolfhounds went off and signed a publishing deal with uh, Warner Chapel and put 12 out with them called Me, yes. which was uh, Jeff Chegwin's label, uh, Keith Chegwin's brother and Janice Long's brother. Right. Um, and I took McCarthy and just started my own label, basically. Um, I had everything set up ready for him to go in the studio with Pink and they was, just didn't want to do it. They just said, no, we don't. just don't want to release it on the Pink label. I can't. I don't really want to say any more than that. Obviously, there's some personality issues. Yes. Not very fair of me, is it, without to discuss personal yeah, reasons? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. But, but that's what happened. Basically, I went off. With, I basically went straight. I left. I moved out of the house that we shared, and because we all lived, the pink label was like a house we all shared, and uh, uh, went off and uh, lived in shared houses with the Wolfhounds, basically, and um, managed McCarthy. Yes. Indeed. I hope you're paying attention. There's a lot to take in there. The ups and downs and the uh, thrills of being in a record label and the music business. Anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Paul Sutton from The Pink Label. We still have more to come. But anyway, before we do, and you need to sit down and digest all that excitement, we should have a track by McCarthy. This is titled Red Sleeping Beauty.
That's McCarthy and the track called Red Sleeping Beauty. This is Dave Least on the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, it's always groovy. groovy. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And it's always nice to hear from you, especially all the love and affection that people throw my way. Actually, they don't, but um, I like to pretend. Anyway, look, this is the third part of my interview with Paul from the Pink Label, where we talk about the post, the post-pink years and September and all that kind of groovy stuff. Paul, tell us what happens next. So, the label started after, after that was called September. That's the one that um, we released uh, when I released the first album. I'm a wallet, right. and uh, the single "Well of Loneliness." And Wolfhounds came back. Uh, I think I put out "Son of Nothing" on that my label as well. Um, and yeah, I think I was, and a few other things. I just had some strange ideas of my label at the time. Yeah, I'd kind of I was listening to all different types of music, uh, well, as we all were really. And I just wanted to put out different music, and I think we did going back to with the pink label as well. We were never really kind of that's probably that was to our disadvantage looking back. We never had a label sound, and we never wanted one, whereas other labels would, yes. So you kind of knew what you were going to get when you were going to buy something on a certain label, whether you liked it or not, whether it was better or worse. It was a different thing, but um, not quite the same, really, because we put out, uh, I put out a thing by Sarah Davis, which was a folk singer. Um, I put out a reggae 12. So it was kind of, you weren't really always sure what you are going to get. So you didn't get that dedicated yeah. sort of band base for the label. Really? I don't well, think. Well, that was, the, I suppose, it sounded more like, yes, my musical taste based on sort of listening to the John Peel show. It was kind of, he was all over the place, really, which I quite liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was quite interesting because I suppose with Sarah Records, they did have just this one sound and you either liked it or you just, it was pointless even, you know, going there because you just knew what you were going to get on Sarah Records. Exactly, really. yeah. And that was, that was a, I mean, that's a smart business move as much as anything. I mean, you know, it is a smart business move. Um, it does get you publicity. Um, it does get you a stronger fan base for your label. People, yes. you know, and people will invest uh, time in what you're doing, really, uh, and listen to what you're doing because they're interested in what the next sound's going to be on that label because they love everything else. But we didn't kind of do it like that. I mean, no. probably should have, really. But there you go. So, so, what would you what would you say to your younger self? Who you know, who who was who would be starting out in that sort of world of trying to set up a record label now with your experience? Um, well, I'd certainly say uh, we certainly didn't treat it as a business. That's for certain. We kind of ambled along and expected everything to happen, and in some cases it did, and that made it worse. So, I'd say you do need to kind of think financially about what you want to do. You need to be prepared to really give up any hope of doing anything else if you like while you're doing it you have to really dedicate yourself to it it's hard work if you're going to try and get anything out of it and there's still no guarantee you'll get anything out of it but you basically you have to plow on you have to believe in what you want to do and you have to you know you just get on with it really and have a single vision as much as you possibly can like i said i would i wish i'd been a stronger person then if i now i would have had a more sensible conversation with some of the artists about what we were actually releasing how we were going to do it um how we were going to record it who was going to produce it all those kind of things rather than just thinking all you've got to do is put a band in the studio and everything's going to be all right yes 
because that was the attitude. It was like, we'll just go in the studio, got this guy to mix it, put it out, and then we'll put the record out and everything will be great. And then we'll get someone to do some artwork of some sort. You know, there was very... In some cases, like McCarthy was different. There was very, you know, artwork particularly. That was like definitely... That was thought of from from the off. There were meetings about artwork. There were more meetings about artwork than music, I think, <laughs> with them, really. It's very specific packaging and the way they want to, to project themselves and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in other cases, you know, it's just the June Brides album was just like one of the girlfriends painted a picture of the June Brides and they just put it on the front cover. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, and, you know, bless her, you know, she obviously made a real effort, but... Um, yeah, it's not the greatest sleeve, is it really? Although it probably does project the kind of, to be fair, kind of shambolic kind of whatever kind of attitude that they had at the time, really. Of, mm. We don't really care what anyone else thinks. This is, what, this is who we are and we're going to get on with it, which is what made them great. Yeah, it's a bit spinal so, tap though, wasn't it really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it was interesting because you were sort of talking about your time with that petrol motion being, you know, drunk and all that. But I remember, you know, Alan McGee, when he went to see a gig in Scotland because someone had dragged him along. I think it was a support band. It was that film about the Oasis. And, okay. uh, and uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but, you know, no, uh, the, the support band, you know, sort of dragged him along. He was very drunk. He signed this band. He didn't know what he'd done. And then next day he's sort of like, oh, I've signed Oasis. And that kind of worked for him. So obviously, occasionally, those moments of kind of debauched madness do work. But I suppose the thing about people like Richard Branson, who did Virgin and Alan McGee, is that they were on their own, whereas you were definitely in a partnership. Did that, would, if you did things differently, would you say partnerships a bit, you know, not so good? No, not necessarily. No, no. In some, some cases, it's good to bounce ideas off, really. Um, I think I, I enjoyed it more running my own label afterwards, I think, although obviously it was much harder work and the pressure's all on you. But uh, having the freedom to make decisions on your own definitely did work. The, a lot of the time the Pink Label was on my own anyway. Um, I gave, within six months, I think it was, of, of getting involved in the Pink Label. So that would have been around uh, September-ish, um, 85. By the spring of 86, um, my timekeeping at work had got so bad that I got fired, basically, because I was I was out five nights a week. I was gaining uh, on, off a night bus at four in the morning and getting up at six and turning up to do an early shift at half seven in Kensington as a computer programmer and operator. Um, and I was just late, 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 late all the time. And I had so many warnings. And I think by the by that point, they just had enough. And yes. um, after six months, they just fired me. Um, so at that point, you could get... Um, a government uh, allowance, £30 a week, and housing benefit to start your own business. Oh, this the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. That's right, that's what it was. So Thanks. I went on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, already being a director of the Pink Label, right, which had been made into a, a company just in case we lost loads of money somewhere along the way. Um, um, and on, on appalling enough financial advice, to be honest, as well. We were told by an accountant to do it, and it was just not a good idea. Anyway, um, I was already director of a of a record company, and um, and they allowed me to do the enterprise allowance scheme as someone that was setting up a record label. So um, so I took their money basically. Uh, at that point, Simon was working for London Underground full time, so I just basically did all the work. Yes. So I ran the label basically just about. Yeah. Um, for the rest of the time. And the one and thing Simon, Simon just gradually faded more 
more into the distance as he went along. Easily done. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Paul Sutton from The Pink Label. Still one more bit to go, but we should play a little bit more music. This is Jamie Wensey and the track called Vote for Love. If I could buy my love a party dress Then I would buy my love a party dress And if I could teach the world some tenderness Then I would teach myself some tenderness Let's vote for love Goodbye, my love, a party dress And I can stand for love and tenderness If you can stand for love and tenderness When will we love again? could stand for love Then I would stand and I said vote for me and vote for love and then we will love again When will we love again Until we do I'll vote for Indeed, the very enthusiastic sounds of Jamie Wednesday in the track called Vote for Love, which I do believe is one of the first releases on the Pink record label. Anyway, the last part of my interview with Paul Sutton from the label, and this is where, um, yes, we start to talk about the kind of various ideas of ownership and publishing and all that exciting admin, which we always find fascinating. Anyway, Paul, tell us all about that 
fascinating world. Right, OK. So, well, there's like two things. One is the recordings and one is the publishing to the recordings, which are two different things. So the publishing is owned by the songwriter. My teaching is suck eggs here. Publishing is owned by the songwriters yes. and the recordings are owned by the person that pays for the recordings, i.e. the record company. Right. So, um, so the actual master tapes, multi-pack tapes and the two-track mixed tapes were owned by the Pink Label. Um, and when the pink label ended, we gave them all back to the artists. Probably, I sometimes I thought I might regret this one day, but I don't really. You know, no one's going to retire on the proceeds of any of these tapes, really. Uh, good luck if someone makes a few bob. Yes. Um, so uh, they're owned by the artists, so they're quite free to um, license the, to, to hand the tapes over for mastering. And then the songwriters um, have all signed publishing deals, so they're owned by the publishers. Uh, certainly in the case of uh, McCarthy and the Wolfhounds, they were published by Complete Music, which is a subsidiary of Cherry Red. So mm-hmm. Cherry Red owned the publishing rights anyway. So basically, once the publisher's got the publishing rights, they can do what they like and license something to anyone they want in the world. They don't have to ask the artist's permission. So they're quite at liberty to press up, reissue CDs and albums of tracks from bands like the Wolfhounds and McCarthy. Uh, on their own CDs or license them to other companies as long as they pay the royalties. Yes. And they've obviously, because there's all those bands like Terry and Jerry, the Wolfhands, June Bright, they've all had sort of really nice compilations and collections done by Cherry Red. So, but do, and then do the songwriters get a, a, a some sort of little royalty check occasionally when they sell enough of those CDs? No, because they, they, well, no, because the money from the CDs is to do with the, um, Owners, which that would go to the band, whoever that is. So I imagine in the case of the Wolfhounds, it would go to Dave Callahan, and then he'll distribute that amongst whoever. It's when they're played. So publishing is is when they're played on the radio or TV or whatever. Oh. That, that royalty comes from that. So that's the that's the actual publishing royalty. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they can um, they they're going to be getting money on the back of that if they're actually getting played. So if you play them on your show, yes. and it's licensed by the PRS, then, and you keep records and they ask for them, and it's got that artist in there, then, and that song, then that royalty will end up going over to Complete Music or Cherry Red or whatever they're called now as the publisher. Yeah. And they're just automatically distributed to the artist. So, yeah, they will get checks. A little check. Um, I do that. I don't, they do, actually, because I do remember um, Andy, a couple of years ago, Andy Golding from the Wolfhound said he. He got he got some a royalty check for about sixteen pounds or something. It was the first one he'd ever received in his life. Yes. <laughs> well, I know that people like you know Greg from Big Flame to say they occasionally get you know like ten pound and they just give it to charity because they think oh I just don't want to even think about you know declaring it. I'll just you know pass it on. So that's fair yeah. enough. And did you? I mean, during that time, I mean, obviously now we look back, we're always much wiser, but. Um, I mean, did you sort of feel part of that kind of indie scene? Because because I've always put kind of that classic indie as kind of almost like the first Smiths album or single, you know, until until they almost broke up and then it went into sort of rave and grunge. I mean, did you feel part of that sort of indie zeitgeist? Uh, certainly at the beginning, you know, from like 84 or whatever. Uh, yeah, that was kind of when it... I think you have to, for me, you have to kind of go back to what it came from and um, what was happening at the time, and in the early 80s, you look at like a lot of the indie charts, it was all a bit goth. People were dressed in black with long hair and chains 
and it's all a bit kind of sub Bauhaus. I can't remember the name of any other groups around that. At that there was time, kind of but... there was the Mission Alien Sex Fiend and Sisters yeah, and of Mercy. Yeah, and there were indie bands as well as smaller. Yeah, and, and they, in the early eighties, that was like really massive. And the the, the like the June Brides thing and and that kind of era and some of the other bands I struggle to probably remember any of them, but um, Jasmine Minx was one of them. They were on Creation, weren't they? Yeah. But it was. The loft and things like that. That was like the an- antithesis of, of all that that had gone before, and it was it was not about this kind of pretentious what we saw as a pretentious, miserable, like gothic, pompous. It was almost like to us, it was like punk versus prog rock. Yeah. Right? So we didn't like that at all. So um, we didn't like all that alien sex fiends and all that rubbish. So all those bands that I was involved in had no interest in that, and it was definitely a reaction. And if you look at the way it all started, they were all a bit of a reaction. It was completely the reason it worked around that first period when we started doing it. And there was basically at that time there was probably just us and Creation that really were kickstarting it. I think um, in London, and then obviously quickly around the rest of the country, we found other people that were. Had like-minded, really, not necessarily musically, but like-minded, um, and it was a it was a reaction against what had gone before, and yes. we wanted to change everything, um, and it did, and it created this kind of own little scene, I guess, that didn't have a name, um, and so everybody had a club, you know, you'd go to we'd go all over the country, over Glasgow down to Cornwall. Um, playing at other people's clubs. They'd all come into London, able to play in the living room or whatever, or Thames Poly. So you'd have Big Flame. Friday night, you'd have like June Brides and Big Flame at the Thames Poly. You know, um, the next week you might be in Glasgow uh, playing with a couple of bands, the Pastors and, I don't know, someone else. Yes. But there was no, Nate, this is, this is all like 85, pre-86, C86 thing kicking off. Yeah, uh, I know. Uh, it, was, it definitely was friendly... Uh, yeah, friendly kind of scene, and everyone knew. And there were fanzines, and everybody was involved in uh, helping each other out, selling fanzines for each other, writing for them, and all that. Um, the bands socialised. The, the bands were the audience as well. Yes, I mean, you know, it wasn't. It was a very unelitist. You know, the the living room. You go to the living room. There's no stage at the living room. You know, it was just a room with a floor. So the band was on the same level. And like, although it sounds minor, it was like. That was what it was about. You could literally walk past a guitarist to go to the toilet in the middle of their set sometimes at these at these venues. That's what it was like. And nobody, you know, that's what it was. And were you, a, bit, and were you a bit surprised that sort of, you know, a few years later it didn't really take, well, it was, I suppose there was the, the rave and then there was a bit of grunge, but then Britpop came along and suddenly, you know, it was like those bands were like indie and you're thinking, yeah, but they're not really the first generation because you were the first generation really what you were doing yeah um yeah i didn't really pay much by that point i'd kind of lost interest in um kind of like guitar music really so by the time that second the phase of like um yeah the blue oasis brit and brit pop and all that i'd kind of had lost interest to be honest um towards the end of when i was involved in it all uh, when the Manchester thing first started, I kind of I never really got like in Spiral Carpets and the Stone Roses and all that. Didn't really rate them. Didn't think they were any good. Didn't think they were angry enough. You know, we were an angry young man. Yeah. You know, did, did, they didn't have enough attitude. They didn't have anything to say. 
Um, you know, I was more interested in kind of what McCarthy had to say and singing about, you know, communism and Marxism um, and politics and the Wolfhounds with their kind of obtuse kind of angle. Um, and I didn't think that, to me, those bands, didn't, all they were trying to do was be famous. And we were ardently not, although everyone obviously wanted to be famous and wanted that moment of fame, um, they weren't going to be prepared to admit it at the time. And it was all very much about an attitude yeah. and, and as against them attitude. And it was a scene in itself, really. I didn't really notice any change when the C86 thing started, really. No, uh, no. I, I, don't, think... I don't think it became any more popular. I don't, I don't think anything really happened with with the actual C86 like, no. tape coming out. It just, it just kind of reflected a bunch of uh, dissolute bands, really, that were around at the time. So true. That is very true indeed, he says, stroking his chin. That was the last part of my interview with Paul Sutton from the Pink Record Label and also September Records, which I didn't really know much about, I have to confess, but uh, I do know. I do know now. Anyway, that is sadly the end of the show. This has been David Esau. This has been The C86. And I will leave you with another release from the Pink Record Label from 1987, a great year for music. This is Rumblefish and the track called Tugboat Line. Tune in next week. I'll have another special guest. Have a fab time.